Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, an interview with Mark Bragdon, the head of the Harriet Irving Library Research Commons at the University of New Brunswick. We talk about Mark's work in knowledge mobilization, communication, and media literacy, as well as lessons learned from 20 years working in libraries. This interview is the first part in a series that Kaylee and I will be putting together, exploring communication and how both inside politics and within the broader world, complex ideas can be shared in impactful ways. Before we get started, a quick reminder to let us know your thoughts on social media at probpolitics or by sending us an email at probablyaboutpolitics at gmail.com. Now, on with the show. We're here with Mark Bragdon from the University of New Brunswick um, Library System. You can maybe say a little bit exactly what part of the library system you're part of, um, but thank you for joining us at Probably About Politics. Thanks, Alex. Well, I'm the department head for the Harriet Irving Library Research Commons, so I look after programming here, which has to do primarily with knowledge mobilization and providing graduate and undergraduate students, but perhaps uh, more of an official focus on graduate student opportunities to learn from one another and learn different ways to communicate their research beyond the sort of pipeline that they're often on. Right. Yeah, so that's a big part of it. And other than that, I'm also the liaison librarian for the Department of Culture and Media Studies in okay. the Faculty of Arts. And I am the librarian for the Faculty of Education okay. as well. <laughs> and and with that, the Mi'kmaq Wallace-Dequais Center, which is under education mm-hmm. up till now, at least. So I've worked with students in particular in that. Uh, their bridging year program right. okay. that they've run over the years. So those are my main areas of responsibility here. Okay. So looking at kind of your previous and maybe current research interests on your your blog online or your page online, I saw that your research interests are kind of in communication theory and kind of understanding how to communicate and how we communicate. And also you talk about media literacy at the undergraduate level. Um, Is there something to learn about how to communicate by being a person who understands how to learn better? Right. Well, my interest in media literacy came out of what is often for librarians in academia a fundamental responsibility around information literacy and having people evaluate often scholarly information. Mm-hmm. But that I started doing that 20 years ago, so that's certainly evolved as the internet mm-hmm in particular, has evolved and uses of it. And so it moved more into media literacy when the students that I was working with were just de facto whatever you want them to do. They were grabbing information from all over the place. And so how do you evaluate that information? And that eventually evolved into how do you create your own information. For me, the point was that we are right out of the womb consumers of information. Mm-hmm. We're consumers of media. And if we understand media as one of, well, 
has to be more than one because it's mm-hmm. plural. Okay. <laughs> a medium as a means of conveying meaning, meaning mm-hmm. and communicating and extending oneself, then we, we often start in a passive mode with that. Okay. And some, many of us may never move fundamentally beyond <laughs> that, but we're all consumers of media. We have been affected by messages that were designed to affect us. Mm-hmm. And there's mechanisms that can be understood there, mechanisms of influence. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was always going to be a partial project to teach media literacy from the point of view of how you've been had <laughs> and who's having you. Mm-hmm. If you don't get to have people yourself, ultimately, if you don't get to actually use those mechanisms right. to your own advantage. So you understand, you kind of understand innately how many of them work because you've been consuming things for so long. You understand mm-hmm. how, a, how a television show works or a movie plots things out because it's just something you've been swimming in your whole life. But actually thinking about how that works so that you can use those tools to your advantage was, it was particularly working with the bridging year students in the Mi'kmaq Holistic Way program that ha- takes students from high school and provides them with some some upgrades and some university level credits and then they go into other programs and whatnot. So I was working okay. with the English class where they had a research component mm-hmm. and we're going to be grabbing their, their stuff from everywhere. And so that's where that really mm-hmm. started. And I was always thinking at the time that it was important that these students understand how to create messages and be empowered to own their message Mm -hmm. where for so long they've been consuming messages. Mm -hmm. And so that's how that sort of started for me, that interest. Now I've lost the plot of your question. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I think like the idea that, that kind of changes even my view right away of what media literacy is, right? When I think of it, it's like, oh, trying to check the source of a newspaper when you're looking at it, like look at kind of online what, if they're, uh, what the other side is saying or if there's criticisms of a certain yeah. news outlet. But the idea that media literacy being you being a, a reader of media from being a baby all the way and kind of learning how to consume and then learning from that how to create things. But kind of those two things are very separate, it seems. And you kind of become maybe a better consumer of media once you learn kind of how the sausage is made and start making it yourself maybe yeah and i think we sort of maybe in some ways are maybe innately leading our audience to that when we think about where sometimes we end up talking about what newspapers were publishing the most information on election Mm -hmm. that we're talking about and i think that is like a an inherent like adding of depth to your understanding of the media that you're consuming like who is producing it and what are the implications of that Yeah. yeah Yeah, that's a big that's a big initial step is to have people question where exactly is this information coming? And you know already how to look this sort of thing up because mm-hmm. you've been Googling your whole life, but <laughs> you gotta you gotta switch from Googling your favorite celebrities to <laughs> Googling <laughs> the sources of the information that you're consuming and you know, just knowing. Put in the name of a particular publication or a particular sponsor and uh, right. just add the word controversy. <laughs> yeah. See what comes up. Like yeah. what are they actually up to? Yeah. Or yeah. politics and so using some librarian tricks, but moving it beyond mm-hmm. just the academic sources. So, but that's, the, yeah, that's definitely the the first step. Right. And so I think you mentioned here, 
Right. When we think of media literacy, often I'm thinking of newspapers, right? And you mentioned here, like, where the newspapers are coming from and everything. But a big part of what you're thinking about here and what, I mean, we're doing right now is using social media and different aspects of communicating these things than classic print publications or people with press credentials, right? Um, But with that, right, there comes a lot of power. And it gives you all a lot of leverage that you can use and ways that you can get your story out or your message out um, in ways that were not available before. So have you seen ways that people have used social media or these new multimedia techniques to um, share their research? Or do you have any um, things that have changed over like your career over the last 20 years of how those things are done or how you teach those things or how you see them? Well, from the perspective of how these those things are done, I think the the most successful approaches have been participatory when you're you're getting your intended audience to become like citizen scientists and so they're mm-hmm. actually going out yeah. and doing counts with you and those sorts of things are you're encouraged to share this information and share what what you're actually uh, contributing in some way mm-hmm. however initially token it might be as a as a as an approach but i think it's moved beyond that in some cases maybe it's a bit gimmicky and it's spilled into everything now so that when people talk about business people talk about you can't just create a product you have to create a movement around your product (laughs) but it's true that is how things move and and science academia has to move in the same direction. It has to play by some of the same rules if it wants to gain traction. It has to understand that putting out a study that says, you know, you should really be doing these things in your life Mm -hmm. because our data Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. unambiguous. And it's like, well, that's just not a message. That's not a delivery method that Mm -hmm. resonates (laughs) with most people. And Mm -hmm. so you're, you're, they're often working against their own best interest right in that sense yeah. through the communication so it's it's really that participatory angle that's important and adopting the maybe this is the controversial piece but adopting uh, consciously the tactics of some of those uh, of your own antagonists yeah in <laughs> In making your message land, particularly when you want it to land beyond your choir. Right. And that's something I think a lot about. Yeah. In politics and in, in science. I guess in your sort of experience, like working with um, graduate students and, and undergrads to a certain extent, and just as researchers, like, do you find that they're, are they thinking a lot about this? Is it, uh, inter- like, are they thinking about how they can sort of, as we were talking about, moving from consumer to somebody who is, is, you know, by the nature of producing a uh, end product in your research and publishing journal, Chris, you are contributing it. But then, like, how are they thinking? Do you do you think that researchers tend to think about that enough, or could they be thinking about it more? I guess or? they think about it to the extent that uh, the tri council is now making it a more than just a nice to have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's yeah. a must have, mm-hmm. and so they're being edged. I think in a in a laudable way towards finding meaning in the exercise mm-hmm. many of them just it's 
it's an initial foray into thinking about it and thinking, okay, well, we're going to develop a podcast. Mm -hmm. Never done it before, but I've listened to a few. <laughs> and I can put it on my Shirk application, yeah. on my yeah. Shirk application, and it's going to move things forward. Everything there is about the flow of information mm -hmm. and about community engagement and inclusivity, uh, meant broadly, mm -hmm. including bringing many different perspectives to bear on problems rather than just having one one particular angle that then is oversold mm -hmm. and doesn't land. So from a researcher point of view, probably the younger ones coming into academia now are more stoked to do that. And I'm happy that there's now, with those changes in, in funding policy, there's encouragement for them where before they might have wanted to do it, mm -hmm. but it's not really where they had to put their eggs for the yeah. sake of funding and tenure and everything. So that's a positive change. And I think with graduate students, they're still very much in that pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, the, it doesn't matter the program. Well, some programs more than others, but it, it's that you are in, expected to become your mentor. Yes. Mm -hmm. your, I don't know what your, exper your experiences yeah. were, but yeah. that's kind of how the programs are structured, mm -hmm. whether they want it to be otherwise or not. And everything else is either uh, a distraction, like yeah. maybe volunteering or making a podcast when you should be <laughs> finishing up your comps or yeah. whatever the case may be, or it's a necessary evil. Like yeah. Maybe yeah. You've, you've been tasked with organizing a symposium or a conference, mm -hmm. but they're not considered ways that you could be uh, broadening your skill set and also introducing some of your your skills into other areas mm -hmm. so that they are actually practically developing and then feeding back into your actual research. So I think that there's a lot there's opportunity there and I notice it with the programming that we do that it doesn't get a lot of traction mm -hmm. with grad students unless there's a cash incentive. <laughs> yes. Like if it's something that has a cash reward, like we do the Images of Research Challenge, and there's money involved, so students will will participate, or the three-minute thesis, or, or some of these multidisciplinary uh, challenges that they have, like Connect the Thoughts around health research, mm -hmm. and uh, there's one that's going to happen here that is between computer science, a city, and the community college, and it's bringing together uh, student, anybody can apply, and then it's these multidisciplinary teams that have been given a particular challenge, and they have to go through the process of a design thinking type of process of coming up with a solution, and also how are you going to mobilize mm -hmm. that solution? How are you going to present yeah. it for the sake of the challenge, as well as hypothetically beyond that? Yeah. So there's opportunities. So, and I understand that. I wouldn't be any different if I was a grad student <laughs> yeah. right now. But if you want people to invest in their long-term future, immediate cash reward is a great way to yes. yeah. kickstart it. So and we don't. If I could pay people to use my services, then I probably wouldn't need a job <laughs> myself. So, so it's it's a bit of a challenge where graduate students, of course, are have a lot going on, and yeah. there is just that that sense that they should be focused in this one area, despite the fact that their lives statistically speaking, are going to go off in all sorts of different directions mm -hmm. after yeah. graduation. And it's it's so interesting to me that, for one, it's it kind of seems like when you when you publish a paper, like going mm -hmm. back to that, it seems like you publish a paper as a bit like launching a product and having no support for it 
or marketing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you yeah. put this paper out here and then you, there's, you might send one half-hearted tweet from your lab account or something, right? Mm -hmm. And then it gets two likes from your friend's lab account and then nothing ever happens with it, right? right. But then when you do see something where somebody does get a lot of me media exposure, the kind of huge boost to their career on the academic side, but for grad students, it's often not incentivized, right? Like, as you mentioned, like paying somebody is great because it actually incentivizes them to do it. Because otherwise saying, oh, I boosted my lab's Twitter followers from 100 to 1,000 is, I guess, something you could put on a resume, but oftentimes not necessarily something, as you said, that's encouraged as you're kind of supposed to be yeah. come your own advisor, right? And I think as we sort yeah. of, yeah, like... Uh, it sounds like the, the project you mentioned with the connecting with the city and stuff like that seems like a great way to sort of, I think it's also like imagining who your audience is. I think mm -hmm. it's like a certain level of like, especially when you're building from graduate student to maybe you, you get a PhD, you become an academic, like that sort of like idea <laughs> that somebody should be listening to you, I guess, and <laughs> yeah. like who the audience is for what you're doing when mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of communicating ideas. I think it's interesting, yeah. So when, so say I'm a researcher Right. And I've taken everything that you say to heart. I say, OK, I want to start communicating my research. Now, the research that I do, most people are not going to take it out of context or care that much about it. It doesn't have that much social weight to it. Right. But somebody who's necessarily doing research that something about nutrition or something about politics. Right. How do you go about and what are the challenges around framing that and starting to communicate those things in ways that aren't taken out of context or ways that kind of target uh, an audience that has the correct mindset to, to take that message in? Like as you were saying earlier, you know, adopting some of the techniques of your antagonists potentially. Um, there's some messages that are that are easier to communicate or sell and, you know, gather a lot of rage behind or a lot yeah. of political capital behind. So are there kind of tried and true methods to do that with kind of more complex topics where you want nuance to come through? Well, the way you started was interesting to me because it mirrors a question that was put to me when I gave a knowledge mobilization song and dance to the Canadian Institute of Cybersecurity on Friday. Mm -hmm. They had a colloquium and I expected there to be five people, but there turned out to be 50 because it was, I assume it was mandatory. <laughs> the first one of the month is mandatory and there was a number of speakers. Right. And so these are all big brained graduate mm -hmm. students working on, uh, I, I stayed for a little bit of it, student talking about quantum computing and they're definitely talking about things that, you know, I both understood a little bit and didn't understand a whole lot. And the question yeah. was put to me, similar to what you've just said about yourself, said the things that I'm working on are just so technologically uh, out of the, the conversation, mm -hmm. esoteric, that what would I do that would be, that could be of value to a, a greater public? Mm -hmm. I'm working with industry around dealing with network security issues, <laughs> right? And, and so I said, well, security, for example, is an issue that everybody cares about. Yeah. Everybody cares about and is aware more increasingly of issues to do with their online identity. And we all have just, from from the time we're in, incorporated, <laughs> we're, we're worried about our own security, we're thinking mm -hmm. about that. 
And so if you can break in on an angle where people can see, okay, what you're doing actually matters because you are providing a common good. Mm -hmm. However, the, the particular methods might seem esoteric, but if you can think of metaphors for your work that do relate to people's everyday experience, and you can express them visually potentially by using something like the Lightboard Studio and doing mm -hmm. sketches or some of the online uh, video creation kind of cart tune something, pow-tune, pow-tune, pow-tune. <laughs> anyway, so there's all sorts of ways that you can be designing these things and thinking about doing it so that it does potentially land. And the other thing that I mentioned was that the programming that we have here for doing this sort of thing is like a sandbox. These mm -hmm. are workshops. Mm -hmm. You are probably, and I'm guessing also you might be like this too. Maybe. <laughs> uh, you have a high standard of yourself and of your performance. Mm -hmm. And so doing something in an area that you don't feel like you have the background. Mm -hmm. And maybe because it's not something you've done before, maybe you'd think, the hypothetical you, mm -hmm. that you don't have the <laughs> aptitude, <laughs> it's going to be hard to take those initial steps. So it's getting people to take that initial first step. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your own research and I'll, <laughs> I'll see if I can convince you. Do you ever yeah. bring your research into the podcast, for example? Uh, sometimes we do. So at the end of the podcast, we often do a science segment where I'll talk about some science that's in the news. So I talk about science kind of broadly. Yeah. Um, and kind of my way of talking about my research is what I've kind of learned is that I have to get out of I think what probably people last week that you were talking to were thinking of is the like they're working on this small technical problem that's it's not necessarily a small impact that it'll have but it's like a very fine difference between the way it's currently done and the way that they're trying to change it that will revolutionize the way that this happens right um, and I think it's difficult to have, for me at least, to have the confidence to say, oh, I'm building this thing and it's going to have this huge impact, right? Or take credit for all of the research that's been done. So often I'll say, you know, I'm making this thing and maybe this is a very far removed thing from what I'm actually doing. But normally I say, it'll make catheters hurt less to remove because I make biomaterial coatings that are supposed to do all these other things, right? And right. one specific message that I've found that is tangentially related to what I do that lands with people when I tell them it is that it'll hurt less to have a catheter removed when in the hospital somewhere. <laughs> yeah. and, and trying to, and I'm like, you know, it kind of hurts me because that's not really what I do. That is an application potentially down the line, right? Um, but having something to say that somebody will say, oh, that sounds interesting. I've never met somebody who cares about catheters before. And then that kind of gives you an in to actually tell them what you actually do. Um, but kind of trying to find a hook, right? Um, That's just it. Yeah, yeah, you've made it relatable. Yeah. And then As, from there, you can maybe dive deeper yeah. a little bit. Yeah, if they have, you know, another 45 minutes and I get my laptop out with my PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's been, I guess, that's kind of the my my issue with that question, or, not, or what I was trying to address, right, is sharing your research and not having it taken out of context. Because often what communicators of science do or what they're trying to do is they end up with the headline being all the time we cured cancer for the 400th time this year even though it's a specific type of cancer in mice and it was this specific thing right so yeah i think it's it's like yeah that sharing that context and that nuance 
maybe that's not something you do in the first the first blush with with your research that you're sharing. No, I think it's definitely, and and it's like interesting to. It also like I feel like there's like figuring yeah figuring out what is the in with uh, somebody I think is on your complex like a topic that is yeah like you're saying more complex like I think the catheter example is really good but but it's still not <laughs> quite like yeah you're yeah. like I'm still slightly missing the target with you and and is that important that like distance that still will exist um, between what you're actually doing and and the connection you can build with the public to gain interest I guess and it might be a case that. You always get halfway closer, but that means you never yeah. actually get there. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the challenge, and that's the flip side of becoming your enemy. Right. Your antagonist <laughs> is that you lose a little bit of your soul along the yeah. way. But there's right. not a but that's the thing, but you know, there's science and there's scientific communication mm-hmm. and they're very different things as far as I'm concerned. Right. And uh, and have different agendas and they they aren't ultimately the same people. You might be the scientific communicator, mm-hmm. but you might not be the one that actually owns the message or steers the conversation. I think you're saying. that that makes sense, right? I, and I, we, we spoke last week or a couple weeks ago, kind of in leading up to this. And I remember you said that, you know, data doesn't have a message, right? Data is just, it's just a set of information um, and you turn it into like knowledge. You give it a story, right? And yeah. saying that a scientist or the person who gets the data, collects the data, um, and tells the initial story is a different person and for a different purpose than what a communicator is doing it for, mm-hmm. right? So what are what are the, the biggest roles, would you say, for then these these research communicators? Like what are like when you teach people to be science communicators, what do you see as the purpose of those people afterwards? I'll take a step back and I'll tell a little story sure. that la- landed with me and crystallized some thinking that I've been doing. My my uncle married a psychiatrist maybe about 10 years ago. And uh, so I asked him, because I didn't really know anything about psychiatry, I said, oh, do you do psychoanalysis mm-hmm. on people? That's the extent of my understanding <laughs> of psychiatry. He said, no, I don't do that because in order to become become a psychoanalyst, you have to be psychoanalyzed extensively and ongoing in an ongoing basis yourself because you have okay. to become very, very clear on who you are, what you're doing this for, mm-hmm. and you have to be questioning yourself all the time. Right. And it's expensive. Okay. <laughs> the other part too. So this is like, if you're going to use a taser, you have to be tased yourself. Exactly. Okay. If you're going to go into law enforcement, at some point in the early parts, you're going to, pepper, you're going to get pepper sprayed. Right. Okay. Yeah. And all that sort of thing. But this is more ongoing. Yeah. Okay. This is an ongoing pepper spray of the mind. <laughs> I think that's how he, how he put it. And, and that's, that's a thing that I impart as well in, when I talk about media literacy, that you're using your analytical skills to understand why somebody's putting out a message. Mm-hmm. You also have to understand why is it that certain messages resonate with you or why you pursue certain angles on a question. That the whole confirmation bias idea. Mm-hmm. What is it about you or me as a person that steers me in that direction? So when it comes to scientific communication, it all depends on the scientific communicator mm-hmm. and what their objective really is and whether yeah. they're clear on what their objective is, right? But what is their relationship to it? You know, is it 
to sway a population to do something that is vitally important from their perspective, such that how the message is communicated just has to serve that shift that they want to affect. And so that's their clarity. That's their truth Mm -hmm. rather than any kind of underlying truth that the data is allegedly representing. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's all about you shine a, you shine a light in whatever direction in a world that is an immense happening. (laughs) There's so much going on in any event that you bring up or that you focus on, you're going to have to exclude other things. Mm -hmm. And any kind of scientific study is doing the same thing. Yeah. And likely doesn't purport to do anything else. But when it comes to the communication, then that may have to do with, yeah, just with a host of agendas that people may or may not be aware that how much that's affecting how they're doing that communication. Right. So it's really about that first lesson, knowing yourself mm-hmm. as a starting point to understanding your commu- your own communication style and why you're uh, putting out the particular yeah. angle yeah. that you are on, on a message that could be interpreted in any number of ways, mm-hmm. depending on your agenda. I think that could, at least in my own attempts at science communication, I think that could be, that could make it a lot more effective is yeah. thinking about like, what is the purpose that you're trying to do this for? You're not trying to just make a, a cute scheme of what you've done to put on your Facebook page or Twitter or Instagram or something for your lab. Because I think often when I get emails from people saying, oh, come to our science communication workshop um, previously, right? They're like, the reason you want to do this is because it's going to increase the impact of your research and other scientists are going to cite you more. And that's potentially a fine, if that's your goal, then that's your goal, right? But I think analyzing that purpose and kind of if your purpose is you want to affect societal change or you want people to take your research and bring it into their own lives, into their own policy, then the way you do those two things are totally different. And I, I, that is enlightening to me right now. <laughs> and the audience that you're doing it for is totally exactly. different yeah. as well, yes. right? Yeah. Because if you want to affect societal change, there's a good chance that you want to reach people that don't gener- are generally receptive mm-hmm. to change. Yeah. Which is a lot of people. And so you have to understand how they tick mm-hmm. and your relationship to how they tick. And so when you see so much of the polarity that we're focused on nowadays, right. you see that disconnect in two groups, whatever the particular groups are, uh, genuinely from their perspective, feeling like the other just doesn't get anything. Yes. Doesn't understand anything. And I think that this could be like a good spot to like really um, think about something that um, like the podcast is probably about politics and sort of Alex was saying, well, it's, you know, sometimes it's not about politics and that's why it's named that. But the way I think about it sometimes is that he, I think people ask like, why do we have a science news section that he presents? And I almost always think that it is usually also about politics. And, Mm -hmm. and so I think that like this conversation about communication, I think is really helping us to maybe, maybe the audience is already starting to feel like in the communication of research and, and uh, scientific data is inherently political. But I was sort of wondering if, if you wanted to speak and we discuss together, like a bit about like, what do you think about how, we communicate and like what we are communicating can tell us about the sort of like questions of power and, and, and politics and 
when somebody is thinking about how they are consuming their their media or like thinking about an election and that sort of thing. Yeah. Like, should we be considering power and politics in everything that we are communicating, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, yeah. yeah that was sure. Yeah, I think so. I think everything, uh, even unconsciously, unless it's with a really good friend and uh, you really <laughs> understand each other well and uh, you don't, you really genuinely want the best for, for them and don't think that you know what that is, <laughs> then <laughs> other than that, then there's always going to be power dynamics. I don't know if it's inherently a human trait or not, but it's certainly manifest consistently in all human interactions. Maybe I have a bit of a, a more of a cynical view of it. I don't know. But it seems like everything that we decide to investigate and how, how we decide to frame a methodology is all informed by wanting to advance whatever our particular cause is, even if we consider our cause to be altruistic, we're still doing it because it gives us a measure of an illusion of control, which is what we generally, unless you're, I guess, a, a Zen master, <laughs> care about to some extent mm -hmm. even if you don't want to yield that control malevolently it's still something that drives like scientific inquiry as much as curiosity mm -hmm. and, and dissatisfaction do mm -hmm. and so even when it seems to be something as i don't know as inherently benign as how, how fish swim in schools and know when to turn mm -hmm. <laughs> with one another and understanding their particular sensory world or maybe that's not terribly political but it, <laughs> you never know it could, yeah. it could be about measuring ecosystems and understanding how you can affect positive changes there i don't think politic politics and power i guess to qualify is not necessarily a dirty no i don't mm -hmm. think it's a dirty no. word yeah. but it, it permeates everything wanting to either control or at least not be controlled which is a a way of controlling, mm -hmm. a way of at least feeling like you're somewhat in control, is just the way that human society has evolved. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a prime drive. I think this is maybe because I'm uh, getting a, a PhD in geography, but I, I remember that I was reading an article recently, and then in sort of my first classes in this, some uh, uh, my supervisor was pointing out to me, like, or we were having a discussion about maps and just like who makes the map sort of determines a lot about how we see the world and and that a map might be drawn entirely different in another part of the world or by a different person and how that can entirely sort of shape you know the the way that we think about what we're doing and 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 the policy that you might make to sand, settle a land dispute per se or something yeah. like that i guess yeah so yeah I think this is interesting to talk about communication in science, specifically maps, <laughs> because if you at the bottom of any um, research article in Nature or any Nature Family Journal, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, every single one, no matter what the publication is about, says that Springer Nature remains neutral on any representations and maps mm -hmm. that were included in the research potentially, um, just because of how specific where a map is drawn or and it's just such a great way of depicting who owns what it's like such a visceral thing of what you're choosing to show and all of that 
Um, but I think maybe to wrap up with a final question, um, specifically on this idea of power, um, in my view, the library exists as kind of a great leveler of these things in kind of an ideal way, right? An idealized source of knowledge um, where anybody can come can come get that knowledge, right? But if you look at this library, it looks quite a bit different. At least this floor of this library, um, where we're yeah. recording this, um, looks very different from most libraries that I was in, especially growing up. Um, so how do you see kind of the shifting um, purpose of a library in our communities? Um, and especially given that you've worked with a number of different libraries um, in, I think, specifically different communities within Canada as well. Uh, my stance on it all, and I remain consistent with it, is that libraries have always been about literacy and community. Mm -hmm. And the particular type of literacy has changed over time. Mm -hmm. And initially it would have been solely books, but as needs have changed, as media has changed, and have revealed gaps in delivering the literacy instruction and the, the means for acquiring and expressing mm -hmm. oneself, acquiring the language and expressing oneself in that particular language, whether it's music, you know, the downtown Fredericton Library, Ten years ago, went through a massive transformation and threw out any book with a 1970s haircut on the cover. <laughs> and uh, then they were stocking ukuleles because mm -hmm. the elementary schools had switched from recorders to ukuleles. Right. Not everybody could afford a ukulele. And, but that's sort of just that responsiveness to community needs in terms mm -hmm. of the, the literacy that is required mm -hmm. of particular communities. And now you can go pick up uh, little STEM kits with particular projects yeah. and take those out. And so it's responding to the need for yeah. an expanded choice of education. Speaking of needs, too, they have a, a community fridge yeah. in the lobby yeah. of the Federal <laughs> right. Library, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you can literally take food for free. <laughs> so it seems like it's shifted, but to me it's always mm -hmm. been the same thing. Yeah. It's seeing these gaps in fostering literacy and fostering community. And so when it comes to this particular floor, so if you... You go up from the first floor. You you're in the early two thousands. Then you hit the you're in the nineteen seventies on the second floor. Right. Twenty twenty three on the third, and then back to the nineteen seventies on the <laughs> yeah. fourth floor. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the aesthetic, at the very least, yes. and maybe also in terms of the shushing. But mm -hmm. what goes on here is is basically the same thing. Is that knowledge mobilization literacy? Mm -hmm. It's the literacy of collaborating with new tools as well, and of bringing communities together. And so what I've noticed here, for example, this year, just outside the audio studio, there's this MBA enclave. So okay. every day there's a bunch of MBA students that are here from, some of them are here from 8 in the morning, and then when I leave at the end of the day, they're still here. Yeah. And we've gotten to know each other. They'll stop at the desk and say, well, what is that lightboard studio about? Mm -hmm. And say, well, let me show you. I have this assignment. Well, let me show you what it can do. And... I have this idea for something else, so well, let me show you some other things. Mm -hmm. And so it's building on these existing communities that are here and providing them an opportunity to have a, a space that they can flesh out. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it too, is that we're responding to what the articulated and evolving needs are and desires of the students that have shown up. Mm -hmm. right. So to me, it's, it's very much in line with what libraries yeah. 
have always done, if mm -hmm. one thinks about it in those terms, that our means of communicating have evolved mm -hmm. and the speed at which people are able to adopt it is uneven, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And so part of it as well for me is trying to play my little part in a cultural shift in the university mm -hmm. that the university is signified as necessary around things like transformative learning yeah. and, and research impact and community engagement of that research. Mm -hmm. And so providing kind of an upswell of student participation and means of making that happen with mm -hmm. their own type of assignments, being able to hand in multimodal assignments, yeah. doing things in the fabrication lab, to create, go constructionist on some of the assignments yeah. that they get, right? To enact that shift mm -hmm. or enable that shift, which I think libraries have always been a part of, whether, you know, back in say the 1950s with McCarthyism and, uh, you know, purges of, of books with socialist values right up until today with other things that are going on. It's yeah. always been about that to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm enabling that that literacy community and the flow of ideas and of goodwill right. <laughs> and i think yeah. we've definitely benefited from continued sense of of goodwill from patrons as well as the university to uh to continue to evolve in ways that meet evolving needs that's fair well thank you for bringing us into your community yes, at the Harry Irving Library, <laughs> um, and joining us on probable politics um, I think this is really a, a flow of information, right, from the library right, to our audience. Um, and a lot of these things are open to the community as well, right? Like the Fab Lab um, yes. on the third floor and stuff like that. Um, so, and if, if you're not a member of the UNB community, your library also has these things. So go talk to yeah, a librarian. Go, go check right. out what your library's doing, yeah. <laughs> It'd surprise you. Yeah. Right. So thank you for joining us, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you.